0: listening to Pet Candy. Hello everybody. Welcome to Simply Pets with Shannon Gregoire and I'm your host.
1: This show is brought to you by Petsy. Get instant access to veterinary professionals when you need them. Download Petsy today.
0: So today we have someone that I think We'll put a little international spin on your week, wherever you might be, um, with this fantastic veterinarian who travels with some of the world's most elite equine athletes. So please help me welcome Dr. Lisa Borzynski. Hi, Lisa.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you for coming. I mean, this is so cool. So you are a veterinarian for Team USA?
2: Uh, so I'm actually a veterinarian for the uh, FEI, which is the International Equestrian Federation. So I am uh, one of the vets that works with um, the officials and, and works for caring for the health and wel- welfare of horses at international competitions.
0: Wow. So you get to see the horses from all over the world.
2: Correct. Yes. And we had uh, 60 countries represented in, in Tokyo. So yeah, so that was exciting.
0: Wow. And you just
2: had the Olympics in Japan this past summer? Yeah. So unfortunately with COVID, um, you know things were postponed. So the 2020 Olympics um, were still called the 2020 Olympics, but actually happened in 2021. They just kept the previous name. Um, but we were very fortunate that we were actually able to go because uh, even up until the week before, there were still questions about the olympics if the olympics were actually going to happen or if they were going to be canceled or postponed again so it was it was very touch and go for a very long time right up to the time that they actually happened so so we were all fortunate to be there
0: yeah that's crazy how did the quarantine work did you and the horses have to all quarantine like for a certain amount of time
2: yeah so the way it worked is that all of the the horses ended up um, meeting in Aachen, Germany, and they had their quarantine there along with the riders and the, the support staff. And um, they spent two weeks there and then they flew over to Japan. Um, they had a 17-hour flight from Aachen through Dubai uh, to Tokyo. And then for all of the other people that were flying into Tokyo, all of the athletes every, from every discipline, um, every sport, and all of us veterinarians, We were uh, in quarantine while we were there. So basically how it worked was that each sport stayed within their bubble. So all of the equestrian volunteers and staff and everyone stayed together. Uh, We were all in a hotel together. And then we were isolated in our rooms except for when we were at the horse park. And then we could um, be around the horse park. But um, yeah, so we were basically in in quarantine at the horse park for the, the three weeks that we were there. Wow. So no exploring the city in Japan at all. Yeah. Unfortunately, the last couple of days we were there, we were able to get out a little bit because we had been there for over three weeks. So then uh, we were able to get out for a little bit and we were being tested every day. So we were feeling pretty safe and masked up. And so a a lot of precautions taken in place, but it all worked out well in the end because there were very few cases that occurred anywhere related to the Olympics.
0: Oh, well, that's awesome news. That's good for everybody involved. So what goes into, I mean, your planning with the FEI, like all the prep that you guys do for an Olympic showing with all these horses coming in, what does that kind of look like?
2: Yeah, it's it's quite a production. And so there are other international competitions throughout the year. And so the riders and the teams all have kind of their protocols for how they handle travel. But essentially with the Olympics, um, so we were hosted by the Japanese Racing Association And the Japanese Racing Association is very strong in Japan, and there's a lot of racing. It's a huge industry there, somewhere in the order of a billion dollars for the economy. The racing is the the biggest equestrian sport, and there are very few other horses or other sport horses. And so because of that, the Japanese vets are are very experienced and, and very knowledgeable, but not particularly with dressage, show jumping, and eventing, which are the three Olympic disciplines we had a group from the International Equestrian Federation. We are all vets. Um, We had uh, 20 vets from, I think, about 13 different countries and and five continents that were working. Yeah, so we had a a true international team that ran the on-site veterinary clinic. And so we helped take care of horses that needed any care while they were there. But we were also um, part of what's called the field of play, So what we do is we're monitoring horses throughout the competition, during all their training sessions, their warm-ups throughout competition, and watching to be sure that everybody's safe and healthy and be there in case there's any emergencies.
0: So is there um, like a certain physical exam that you have
2: to do to clear them for the competition once they get to the location? They all have an arrival exam when they actually arrive off the plane. And um, so that arrival um, exam entails obviously a physical exam, making sure everybody's healthy, no fevers. We're we're very concerned about any contagious diseases. So um, monitoring temps throughout the competition, but um, of course, when they arrive. And then we examine their paperwork and all international horses have a passport. So we review their passport and all of their information and their vaccination records and other lab tests and make sure that everybody's healthy coming in, that we're not going to have any spread of disease. And uh, once they're cleared, Then throughout the competition, we're monitoring those horses with um, what are called inspections. So we have the horses, they'll have a formal inspection for each discipline where the riders get all dressed up in their team outfits and horses are all um, brushed and braided and looking good. And then what we do is we jog those horses to make sure that they're sound enough to continue competition. So we want to make sure that they are moving well and not having any issues um, before they start competition. So that's called the formal horse inspection.
0: Yeah, that's a lot to make sure everybody's looking tip-top shape before they go out and actually compete for medals.
2: Yeah. And so that's a, a big part of um, FEI competition. This international competition is making sure that, um, you know, horses are well cared for. So the horse welfare is, is number one. We want to make sure that the horses are fit and ready to compete, that they're in good shape, they're healthy. Um, they're not showing signs of any disease or lameness issues. And we want to make sure that they stay that way through the competition for everyone's sake. And then also for, you know, the the sake of our sport. So to make sure that we're able to continue to have these type of events. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So with the other competitions that are international throughout the years, you know, Olympic qualifying competitions and things like that, are you in charge of like the ones that happen in the United States or do you travel internationally for those as well?
2: So there are FEI veterinarians around the world. And so we all have uh, various shows that we work at, we we rotate among um, different shows. I've I've worked at uh, the Kentucky Three Day Event for about 23 years, and have worked at two of the previous World Championships or World Equestrian Games, and then various smaller ones throughout the year in in our area.
0: Wow, that's so cool! Sounds like a, a lot of time
2: abroad and and traveling around. It is, but it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a big commitment, but um, it's also a great opportunity to work with some of the best horses and riders in the world, the best veterinarians, and, and get to meet a lot of friends. And so through all these different events and working together through the years, we've, we've developed some very close relationships with vets from all over the world and stay in regular contact. So that's so really nice.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. I think I would be fangirling more over the horses than the riders.
2: <laughs> yeah, we all are. <laughs> They're just such amazing athletes too. It's just really incredible. But um, but everybody knows how special they are. And, and so each horse has a whole team of people that are there just pampering the horse all day long. And especially at the Olympics, you know, when they're away from home and they don't have other horses to worry about, then that one horse gets special attention all day long. And they're getting taken for walks and they're getting massaged and they're getting acupuncture and chiropractic and all sorts of, you know, various physical therapy modalities just to keep them happy and comfortable. And they've got big, beautiful stalls. And the stalls were were gorgeous at, at Tokyo. They had rebuilt the entire equestrian park there. It had been used for the 1964 Olympic Games. And then they basically started over and rebuilt the whole area. And so we had these beautiful air-conditioned barns with you know thick insulation. So as soon as you walked into the barn, it was just very quiet and peaceful and or you could hear my horses munching hay, you know, going down the aisle. And so everybody was very happy. Lots of rubber mats in the stalls and thick shavings. So they were all pretty cozy and cushy in there.
0: We'll be right back with more pet candy. Hey, pet parents. This is your favorite lifestyle guru, Renee Michelle, and I'm excited to tell you about my new show on Putt Candy. Join me and make some cute pet stuff. Talk about life and love and everything in between. Check out the Renee Michelle show on myputtcandy.com and let's have some fun. I mean, horses get stressed just, you know, going to a local show, never mind going international. So, I mean, what kinds of steps do different teams and stuff take to, you know, when they have to fly or when, you know, horses travel long distances and trailers, what kind of modalities do they usually
2: use to settle them down a little bit? Yeah. So there are a lot of questions there, but a lot of these horses, by the time they get to this point, have traveled quite a bit. They've traveled cross country in trailers and to various shows. And so these horses are pretty seasoned and pretty used to travel. Um, they may not have flown quite as much, but, but the flying is actually easier on them than traveling in a trailer because it's much smoother. There's, you know, a lot less bouncing and going around curves and having to balance in a trailer. So, you know, apart from the takeoff and landing, it's actually pretty smooth sailing, You know, no pun. It's actually, you know, pretty nice for them. And they travel with their own grooms. And so the grooms that are the ones that are, you know, their person that, that takes care of them day in and day out is with them. And they, They're, you know, they're hand feeding them if needed. You know, they've got their hay and their water and their in their grain, right in the the stalls on the plane. And, you know, they're well taken care of there too and everything's temperature controlled. So that's really nice too compared to a trailer where you might be going through some different temperature extremes. Um, So the the travel actually is, it still can be stressful and horses can lose weight, you know, anytime they travel and with stress. And then of course at at Tokyo, um, everyone knew ahead of time that the heat and humidity was gonna be a huge factor. And so that was something that people prepared for you know, six to 12 months in advance. So they were conditioning the horses a little bit differently. They were preparing their horses for much higher heat and humidity than they've ever had at any Olympics before. So, you know, the, what they told us, even as volunteers and and as staff, they were telling us to, you know, prepare by sitting in your kitchen with the, the tea kettle going. So you would be in a steam bath essentially and work out in the hottest part of the day and, you know, just try to really prepare yourself for the the high heat and humidity that we were going to experience there. So all these horses and riders were well prepared for that in advance. And in addition to that, a lot of times um, they're given a little extra feed to put on, maybe a little extra weight right beforehand to accommodate the the weight that they may lose. You know, twenty five to fifty pounds through the the course of the the travel and the competition. So um, so they they kind of take advantage of you know that to to try and put on a little extra so that they're perfect weights and such when they they get to the competition and then like you say they also are getting their massage you know they might get their their favorite music you know different horses like different music you know so anything that they need that that, you know, and, and these horses and their grooms, you know, like say are together so much that, that the grooms really know what each horse likes and when they need something. And so, you know, each horse is a little bit different in their preferences, but but there's a little system for each one of them. And then all of the the feed and grain was transported in advance. And so they had everything that they were used to there. So, yeah. And how do you, I mean, for anyone
0: listening, how do you even get to this point of being a veterinarian for the FEI and traveling to all these amazing competitions with these world-class
2: animals? Well, it has been a journey and um, it was something because I was involved in the sport of eventing um, for most of my life and was a rider um, and worked with some, you know, as a rider worked with some former Olympians. And then when I was training with A former Olympian, Ralph Hill, he helped kind of get me involved with the the FEI and the Rolex Kentucky three-day event um, in about 1999. And that kind of went from there. I knew I couldn't be a rider at the Olympics. So that was the next best thing was to be a vet at the Olympics. So something that I've worked towards and has been a dream of mine for most of my life. And yeah, 23 years later, working at at various events and kind of working my way up the ranks and through various roles in the FEI and as a FEI vet, and then working at the World Equestrian Games twice. There was a lot of our team that had worked at the 2018 Tryon Olympic uh, Equestrian Games and so a lot of our team went to Tokyo as well. We had, uh, had a few issues in, in uh, trying that we had to work through and some challenging times. And we all worked really well together and had a great attitude through that. So I think that was a little bit of the factor in, in choosing who went to the Olympics as well. You also own a practice and you're a mom as well. I don't own a practice. I work in a practice. So I'm in a um, a referral hospital in Wisconsin, Wisconsin Equine Clinic. And so we have 10 doctors in an equine-only referral hospital. So we're a referral center for the Midwest. Um, We see horses from about 10 different states. We have um, surgical and ICU and MRI facilities and advanced reproduction. So yeah, so I'm involved in that and primarily do uh, field service myself. So I'm on the road for... You know, about sixty to seventy hours a week. And um and yes, I have I have one daughter and um husband and farm and five horses and, and two dogs, three cats. <laughs> Where
0: do you find the hours in the day for all that? <laughs> I
2: don't sleep a lot, but I love what I do. So and, yeah, and especially, you know, continuing to ride, you know, that's takes a little extra effort to ride when you're that busy, but that's also part of my de-stressing time is being at the barn, even though it seems like, you know, you'd want to get away from horses. I actually love my time at the barn with my own horses when I'm just riding because I have to to shut everything else out and and just focus on the horse.
0: Yeah, exactly. I feel like, I mean, riding, I don't think like a doctor when I'm riding. I think like a rider and I just focus on what I'm supposed to be doing and I don't focus on all the medicine stuff at the time that goes away.
2: <laughs> yeah. You have to, otherwise the horses know that. And... Uh, so what has been the biggest challenge
0: of, you know, doing all this FEI work and this international competitions? I mean, do you, you work full time in the clinic? And then when you have an event, you get like the time off to do the event
2: and then come back and work again. Yep. And then, and then try to catch up from the time that I was gone. So, um, so that was, that was actually challenging this year because I worked at uh, let's see, I worked at four different events this year. I worked in Kentucky. um, I worked at a competition in Illinois. And then I was at the Olympics for three and a half weeks. And then I was at another show in Kentucky in October. so, So I was gone for, I think, eight or nine weeks for... Uh, working at horse shows this year doing FEI things. And, and so then that time I had to try and make up when I was home in between shows to try and make up for the time lost. But um, but it was good. It was a, it was a crazy year, but um, I, I just feel very fortunate to be able to do what I do and to love what I do and to have the opportunities like this. So So it's all worth it.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. And you get so many cool stories and I bet you get to meet so many amazing people from all across the globe, that just you know love the same things.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I'd say that was the best part of it. Even though you know we were challenged with COVID and you know and and all of the quarantine and all that, we within our quarantine bubble, we had just such an amazing group of of veterinarians to work with, and really made some lifelong friendships. So um, we're still in contact. A lot of us are, you know, touching base and WhatsApping every week still and staying in touch. So um, so that's been the greatest thing to come out of this. And as a rider, it was really amazing Um, because there weren't any spectators at the Olympics. We kind of had, you know, front row seats to this, you know, nonstop, you know, clinic, you know, educational, you know, watching the best coaches in the world and the best horses and best riders and, and listening in on all of their training sessions and seeing how they train and what they do and, you know, how they get the, the best results from their horses. So, so that was really amazing too, as a rider. Yeah, absolutely. You kind of get amazing indirect riding lessons while you're there. Yeah. Learn from the best. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Just like hit the record button so you can remember what they said and then do it later. (laughs) See how they set up their poles
2: for their jumping and practice. Yep. Absolutely. That's all important good stuff.
0: (laughs) And I heard that Bruce Springsteen's daughter, Jessica, is on Team
2: USA. Yes, yeah, she was. She was on the silver medal winning uh, show jumping team. So Jessica Springsteen is um very good rider. She's been a very good rider for a very long time. This was her first Olympics. Uh, unfortunately, Bruce was not able to be there at the Olympics because of the, the quarantine issues. There weren't any spectators involved or allowed to be there. And it was very sad because they had these beautiful facilities, you know, this absolutely gorgeous equestrian park. It was about 45 acres, right in the middle of Tokyo. So when we would be up in the grandstands, you could see the entire Tokyo skyline and Mount Fuji. And so it was really incredible. And they had this 10,000 seat stadium that was empty. So that was really sad and kind of sad for the riders. But um, those of us that were there, you know, the couple hundred people that were, you know, vets and grooms and coaches and other riders and and the other volunteers then, there were probably a few hundred people that were in the equestrian park at any given time. So um, so those people would all come out to watch and support and yell our loudest and wave the flags and, you know, try to cheer everybody on just to, you know, make it feel like it was a little big, bigger event. It was a huge arena and this huge um, you know, the lights and the TV and you know all the big you know jumbotrons that that was all still going, but just a lot of empty seeds. So We'll be right back with more pet candy.
1: How do you do it? How do I do what, Jess? How do you manage to do it all? What's your secret? How do you do it? I can't keep up. Oh, that's simple. I make things easy. Ashley, what? Come on, tell me the truth. Yes, Jess, I make things easy. I order everything online. Groceries, food, clothing, veterinarians. <laughs> what? <laughs> you order veterinarians online? Come on, girl, quit kidding me. Yes, Jess, I do. When I have a question or my pup isn't feeling well, I petsy it. Petsy is a free app that lets me talk to a veterinary professional instantly. And for only $20. No, are you serious? Only $20? Yes, and I love Petsy. I can talk to a veterinary professional 24-7. It really gives me a peace of mind knowing that Petsy's there when I need them. Wow, Ashley, you amaze me. I'm downloading Petsy today. So, does that mean you're paying for lunch? Nope. (laughs) yeah that's pretty sad well
0: I mean hopefully most of the riders will be able to go to was it 2024
2: yeah so yeah so that'll be in Paris is the next Olympics oh that sounds gorgeous yeah (laughs) and then 2028 is is back in the U.S. in LA oh yes that's right wow I mean I can't imagine where they're going to find all that room in the city of Los Angeles, but they'll find it. They've had them there before, so they've had the olympics um uh, l a posted the Olympics, I think it was like around eighty four so we they've had it there before, and there is a an equestrian park there. They do have some other big events there. the cross country is is off site, but um yeah, they already have some of the the facilities already there, so I'm sure they've got a plan. yeah, right, well. Maybe come
0: 2028, I'll have time to go down there and watch. There you go. Yeah, you'll have to plan for that. Exactly.
2: I'll request the time off now. Yeah, do a podcast from there or something. You can interview some riders or something.
0: Yes, I would love to do a live show. That would be fantastic. Maybe we can meet up at 2028 in Los Angeles.
2: Sounds great. Yep, I'm I'm planning to be there. Yes, that would be so amazing. And her horse is famous too, right? Don Juan? Yeah, so she has an amazing horse and... Yeah, so we were very proud of um, all of our Olympic um, U.S. Olympic teams. So the dressage team um, had one of their best placings ever um, with the silver team medal with them. And then the eventers, not as well as they'd hoped, but still, I think they finished sixth overall as a team. And then the um, show jumping team was also silver medalist. So, so it was exciting.
0: So who won? Did Germany sweep? I feel like they win the
2: most. <laughs> Yeah, they do. <laughs> they went a lot. Yeah. So for the show jumping, um, actually, the Swedish team won the show jumping, but they were absolutely amazing, and their horses, you know, were so. There was it was kind of a different format this year than they've ever had, and and part of that is because you know, equestrian sports are are expensive to host, and so the Olympics, um, and Olympic committees each year, you know, review which sports they're going to keep, and and so in order to try and cut costs, they you know have. Kind of changed equestrian sports over the years and and different formats to try and you know accommodate more countries, um, but still keep the costs down and fewer riders. So instead of having four-person teams like they've always done in the past, they had three-person teams. So there was an option though between the. Teams And the individual competition to do some substitutions, you know, for, for various reasons. There were some different rules. But the Swedish horses um, were those the same three Swedish horses competed five different times, did five different rounds and were foot perfect with no faults for five rounds. I think they had one rail out of all of those. And um, so they really were they really were the best team. So it came down to the wire for the team event with the U.S. just you know, one rail behind, but it was, um, it's it still, they, they deserved to win. They did a great job. That's amazing. I can't believe they only hit like one rail. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. After five rounds if 15, well, 15 between the three horses. So yeah. So it was pretty amazing. Yep. They got some extra treats after that performance. Yep. <laughs> All the horses got lots of treats. <laughs> yep. Yep.
0: Uh, so does every country get to participate in the equestrian games or no, because of the
2: expense? Well, so what they do, they have different qualifiers too. So the the hard part about you know all of our equestrian sports is that not every country has facilities or um, you know the trainers and such to be able to train to that level, that caliber. So what ends up happening and what we saw, um, and what actually was, was quite interesting as well at the Olympic games is that riders from, you know, especially from Africa and Asia come to, or South America go to Europe. Most of, most of the riders actually train in Europe or the U S because there's, you know, they're better trainers, more trainers. Good horses, good facilities, a lot of competitions for them to practice at. There were riders from Egypt and Morocco and South Africa and all over South America, all over Asia, You know, Hong Kong, China all had great teams. The Japanese team, they all train in Europe. That was actually helpful for me as a vet and a, and a rider You know, because everybody, for the most part, spoke English because that was the international language. Um, you know the Japanese are working with the the British coaches, and you know some of the others are working with Swiss coaches. So, uh, so English was a common language, which made it you know, like I say, easier for an American to be there and and understand everything that was happening. But it also leads to a lot of camaraderie. So I actually took some pictures while I was there, which was really. Kind of cool when you see, you know, an Australian and Egyptian, you know, riding together and they're they're chatting, they're old buddies, and they've they've known each other for years because they're all riding and training on the same circuit. You know, they're traveling around the world together, so they see each other all the time, and and this is you know like a big group of friends, so. So that's really neat. There's a lot of camaraderie among all the nations, but there were 60 nations that were represented. So quite a few um, from five different continents, actually six continents. So, you know, we had Africa in, as well. There were riders from all over, but the powerhouses have been and probably will always continue to be, you know, the Europeans, you know, they're just a lot further ahead in their in their training and breeding programs. They've really been focusing on equestrian sports for hundreds of years. And so they've got a, a bit of an edge on everyone. Yes, and they don't export their best horses to the U.S. Right. (laughs) They keep the good ones.
0: (laughs) They do. They do. They hide them away and then they show them at the Olympics like, hey, look what we have.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even our U.S. riders have been trying to train more in Europe just to, you know, have that level of competition. Um, you know, we have some great riders and some great competitions here, but um, to really feel competitive on a, on a world stage, um, our U.S. teams do travel overseas, you know, a fair amount just to get that, that world, you know, international competition experience.
0: Right, yeah, it's better to uh, face your German opponents way before the Olympics on their own turf.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, will just you know kind of know what what level they're at, and you know, you know, have something to you know kind of work towards. <laughs> it's Like, oh, we've got it. We've got to up our game in this area or that area, and you know, kind of see where we need to improve. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. That's so cool.
0: And with when we were talking about like the breeding and everything that they do there. I mean, a hot topic in small animal right now is all the inbreeding in dogs and cats. Are you aware of anything similar like that on, you know, in the horse
2: side? Well, it depends on what breed you're talking about. Not in the sport horses, because I would say there again, that the Europeans have really been very careful over the years with their breeding programs. They're very, very skilled and they spend a lot of time looking at bloodlines and and really trying to Mm -hmm. produce the best versus, you know, I would say in certain other breeds, especially where they're trying to maintain certain um, physical characteristics, um, just like with dogs, you know, when you're when you're breeding for, you know, the short, short-headed, you know, smushed face you know, horses, you know, so some of the breeds, I would say, you know, Frisians, Arabs, some of the draft breeds are a little bit more inbred and tend to have more of those types of problems. But most of the sport horses are pretty interbred. They're breeding for performance, not for a physical appearance.
0: Right, right. They're not looking to maintain a certain color or anything. It's all physical ability,
2: right? Yeah, it's all about, about performance and yeah, not not physical characteristics. So.
0: Right, because Frisians, you can't register them if they have like a speck of white on them, right? They have to be legitimately all black. It's pretty
2: crazy. Yeah, Icelandics, you know, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, you know, inbreeding with some of those, you know, they're pretty isolated there. Oh, really? Like the Icelandic horses? Yeah, because their breeding is all, you know, pretty much based on one island, you know, so they're pretty, you know, interbred. So there just isn't a lot of outside influence and they're trying to maintain, you know, those certain characteristics, but, you know, not that they're, you know, a lot of bad things, but there just is more tendency for, you know, some of those genetic type of issues in in those breeds where they are, breeding for a certain characteristic versus, you know, just really trying to breed the best of the best. So, you know, when, when you're talking about warm bloods, you know, we have a lot of different warm blood breeds, but, you know, just because a horse is registered at Oldenburg doesn't mean that it's all Oldenburg, you know, they're, they're intermixing, you know, tricaners and, and, you know, selfrancais and thoroughbred and, and Hanoverian and Holsteiner. And so there's a lot of, you know, mixing of of the breeds you know they get registered as one thing or another just based on you know their some of their breeding and and you know characteristics but yeah like say they're really primarily looking for the best athletes
0: we'll be right back with more pet candy
2: Hi, this is Shay, and I want to tell you about my new show on Pet Candy, Cooking with Shay. I make vegan eating easy and fun. Check it out on Pet Candy TV.
0: That seems to be a little bit uh, better of a way <laughs> to breed them because <laughs> then it, it makes them more
2: healthy. Yeah, it is. It, you know, because we don't see problems like that. And then we do see much better, stronger horses that are better able to withstand you know, competition. I mean, they've got obviously the, you know, the physical prowess to be able to do these types of things and have the the movement and the gates and the power, but then they also do tend to hold up much better too. You know, they've got, you know, much better conformation and they've, you know, got strong, you know, tendons and ligaments because they're breeding for the best of all those characteristics.
0: Right, yeah, because, you know, they get lameness issues and they're not going to be able to compete. So they want horses that are resistant to those types of injuries. Exactly,
2: yep, yep.
0: And is your daughter interested in horses? I mean, with an amazing world traveling mom like yourself, I bet, you know, my guess is that she would be all about
2: it, but. Oh, I, I wish she were, I really wish I tried. She had ponies till she was 12 and and she appreciates what I do and, and she's proud of me for what I do. But she's she's a little bit of afraid of horses and she's her own girl. She's a dancer. So. Okay. All right. Well,
0: that's, I mean, dressage and, and ballet are pretty closely related, you know.
2: Yeah. She actually was a very good good rider. She just uh, preferred to dance and to, to be on her own two feet. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, I can understand yeah. that. It is quite
0: different using someone else's legs to move.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and that trust and, you know, that mm-hmm. confidence of, being that far up and yeah,
0: unpredictability of it. <laughs> yes, it is so much trust to be able to, you know, have that animal kind of have your life in their hands a little bit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But that's, you know, reciprocated with them trusting you for wherever you take them. So, right, right. yeah, that human animal bond with horses. I think, you know, there's a huge bond with dogs and cats, but it's, I wouldn't say better, than a bond with a dog or a cat, but it's, it's different in the complexity maybe of the bond.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And especially for sport horses and the people that are really, you know, working with their horses day in and day out and developing that bond and that trust. And, and that's how they get to the Olympics. You can't, you can't just, you know, take any horse off the street and do that. You know, that takes years of training and, and timing and, you know being one with your horse and understanding your horse and your horse understanding you and your cues and what you want from them and what they want from you. And, you know, it's, it really is a team. So, and that's, I think what, a lot of people don't realize. In fact, I just had some friends last night saying, oh, you know, some people would look at it as equestrianism as not a sport. You just hop on a sport and the, on, on the horse and the horse does everything. And it's not that way at all, you know, because sadly, as we saw with, you know, the modern pentathlon, <laughs> those people were not riders and, and did not do very well. So those horses and riders in, in the Olympic disciplines or really any of the you know, international levels, you know, they've been together through thick and thin and they've really bonded and come to understand each other. And it's such a, you know, split second timing that it really has to be a a connection with the horse and the feel. And um, because things happen just like in an instant, and there's really not time to stop and think and ponder about what's next. You just have to be one with your horse. Right. Yeah. The minutia of all that intense,
0: like nonverbal communication is just You have this whole language between you and your mount about, you know, everything, you know, they'll ask you and you have to respond with all these different slight movements. And, you know, an amazing rider because it looks like they're doing absolutely nothing, but they're doing everything.
2: Yeah, you're right. That's a that's a great analogy. It's it's a language. It's a it's a special language that they have. And and yeah, especially you know when you see the dressage horses, and you know if you watch any of the freestyle, or if anybody wants to watch, there's some great YouTube videos from some of the freestyle um, dressage, which you know are, are the most entertaining, especially for a you know, non-horse, you know, spectator, non-horsey person that, you know, they, they may not understand everything that's going on, but it's entertaining because the horses look like they're dancing and it just looks so effortless. But yeah, and it looks like the riders are doing absolutely nothing, but there is, there is a non-stop communication going on between the horse and the rider there.
0: Yeah. I always love listening to um, their choice of music and how they integrate like the beats and the music to the steps and the different movements that they do in dressage it's fantastic because I competed in dressage up until in my undergrad years. And I was just, I wasn't a big fan of jumping, but I loved like the more intricate communication, I guess, needed for all those crazy dressage movements and how difficult it is to get your horse to do that, even you know, roughly, never mind as
2: finessed as they make it look. It's crazy. It's really insane. Yeah, there's so much to it. And and I always say the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. It's constant learning curve
0: so crazy that these horses are, are young too, when they, when they get to these competitions, you know, I mean, a lot of the horses are repeat, but they can be what as young as, you know, seven to 10 years old competing in the Olympics.
2: Yeah, I would say, yeah, that's seven to eight is, is pretty much, I think eight is the minimum age actually, but, you know, so most of them would be, you know, in the 10 to 12 range to get to that level. You know, they may be just at their first Olympics or first big competition as an eight-year old, but, um, but it takes some time. So yeah. So usually, you know, around 10 to 12, 10, and the oldest horses, um, you know, can be 17, 18 years old, but it is a lot of work. And so they, um, it takes a long time to build up that that communication, and that language with the horse to be able to achieve that that goal and to get to that level of competition.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And with all this crazy traveling and all the busy things that you do, what is something that you use to kind of rewind and shut off? I mean, I know you mentioned horseback riding, so that might be the answer, but just something to kind of, Totally relaxed.
2: Yeah, that's probably my number one is that, you know, it's it's hard sometimes after a long day, and especially in the wintertime when it's cold out and it's dark and it can be really hard to be motivated to go to the barn. <laughs> so um, so I usually do try to do that before I go home and get too cozy and relaxed. But mm-hmm. um, but once I'm there and you know, as as hard as it may be to get motivated to go out in the cold and the dark, then it still is once I get on the horse, then everything else just kind of goes away. And, and um, you know, there's a physicality to it, but it is, you know, just such a, a mental release. And, and uh, you know, I've learned more over the years, you know, how to do that better so that I don't drag all my... You know, baggage with me to the barn because the horses do feel that. (laughs) Especially when you ride thoroughbreds, they're very sensitive, and and they can feel if you're tense or angry or, you know, holding something in. So you just have to breathe and just let it all go and just focus. You know, every every second on on that horse and not anything else. So so for me, that is my my best way of just letting go of everything.
0: Yeah, that's really great. And definitely, the hot-blooded horses definitely will not let you walk away with anything like they will let you know that something's wrong
2: <laughs> yep yep so if if they're telling me that they're tense and like oh I better relax or I better think about okay where am I holding that tension or what do I need to relax what part of my body so you know you absolutely have to learn to relax everything yeah my first trainer used to
0: keep yelling at me to breathe because I would get nervous and I would like hold my breath and he's like you have to breathe like
2: breathe <laughs> And it got a lot better after that. I have to remind myself that, you know, throughout my ride every day, just like, okay, just breathe, just let it go, you know, just get rid of any tension that you're, you're carrying. And sometimes, you know, you do that for a bit and then you have to repeat it. And it's like, okay, you know, it's starting to get a little tense again and like, okay, let it go. So it's, it's great. It's, it's like a meditation on horseback.
0: And all the places that you've traveled, do you have any like one place that sticks out that is your favorite, or do you just love everywhere you go?
2: Oh, you know, I I've been traveling not just for um, competitions, but you know, as a as a traveler, as a backpacker, you know, working on farms and at vet clinics around the world while I was in college and vet school. So so I've traveled to all seven continents and to fifty different countries, and and wow. i have so many favorites that i you know it's hard to pick any one because there're just like amazing moments and amazing things about so many different places um, and as much as i would love to go back and visit all those places i the more i travel the the longer my list of go to places <laughs> becomes so so i still have a, a big list of places i want to get to so um so yeah I'll just I'll keep traveling for as long as I'm able and trying to see the world and learn more about you know other people and cultures and seeing what's out there. We'll be right back with more pet candy. This program is brought to you by Petsy, a free app that connects you instantly with veterinary professionals 24-7. What are you waiting for? Download Petsy today. What's
0: uh, like one place that you really have your eye on in the future to go to?
2: Well, I'm, my next big bucket list um, trip is to Nepal and Bhutan. Wow. When's that? Well, hopefully this year, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll see, see how things go.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. See how everything fluctuates this year. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah. In, in the next few years. Yeah. That one, that and uh, Machu Picchu um, are actually my next two big, just vacation spots. So
0: yeah, I would love to see all those ruins and all those crazy, amazing like
2: temples and things that they built were insane. So I got to go to Antarctica a few years ago with um, one of my college, uh, or sorry, vet school classmates. So uh, she was a veterinarian in the army and traveled and worked all over the world. And we both had been to six continents and decided we needed to see the seventh. And so we went together. So that was amazing.
0: Wow. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Where did you go to vet school?
2: Uh, At Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin at Madison.
0: That's so cool. And that's so awesome that she traveled just as much as you guys, as you, and then you decided to take the last one off
2: together. That's awesome. Yep. We're, we're travel buddies. So.
0: And if you had anything to say to either young Lisa or another young aspiring equine vet that wants to go into these, you know, international competition and work with these high level animals, you know, what advice would you give to yourself or to someone in, in your position?
2: Well, that's really interesting because, you know, as you may have heard, um, you know, across the board, we have fewer and fewer people getting into veterinary medicine. But really, especially in equine practice, it's, we're at a critical need. You know, there, there aren't any veterinarians um, coming out of school now that want to go into equine practice because it is it is a lot of work. You know, it's long hours. It's, you know, maybe not the greatest working conditions. You know, we, we don't get paid as much because we can't see as many patients in a day as, as people do in small animals. So I have been actually talking to a lot of young veterinarians and, you know, vet students and stuff over the last few years. And, and we're really trying to, you know, paint the whole picture for them, not just that this is about money and, and, you know, working conditions, but it's also, I mean, it is a lifestyle, but there's also the satisfaction and there's, Mm -hmm. there's such great satisfaction. in in my job, I, I don't think I realized when I went to vet school, how, much of the interaction is actually with the people and the horse owners. You know, everybody goes to vet school thinking, oh, I want to work with animals. I want to work with horses, this and that. And that's, that was my thought too. But really one of the things that I love the most is that I have these amazing relationships with my clients and their families and their horses, you know, because we go out to the farm and because we, we see these people on a regular basis, we go into their homes so we really see the whole big picture and I just love being a part of that whole, you know, it's a very holistic approach to medicine, but, you know, it's also about the, the human relationships too. And, and my clients, some of them are some of my best friends because you just spend so much time with them and go through so much with them, with their animals, even personally with, you know, their own health and, and family and stuff. So, you know, we really get to know them much more personally, I think, than, you do even in, in small animal medicine, animal medicine, because you do spend so much time with them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the hardest things, I mean, even in small animal, but with large animal, the internship and residency income rates are below poverty line in a lot of these situations. And with the increase in student loans, like, I don't know what we can reconsider to get more vets into equine practice where it's more sustainable and they're not drowning.
2: Yeah, well, I was just at our AAP, our, our American Association of Equine Practitioners meeting um, in December, and there was a lot of discussion about that. And so, one of the first things we have to to look at, of course, you know, is the cost of vet school. And it's to me, it's pretty ridiculous that we, you know, are charging so much for veterinary school in the U.S. when almost any other country in the world has free. Free schooling, they've got free university now. Not everybody gets to go. You know, you have to to qualify and you have to, you know, meet certain certain criteria. But they're they're not paying. They're not coming out of school with you know hundred thousand or two or three or four hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. So that's I think number one. You know, nobody should have to come out of school with that much debt, no matter what your field. And then I think the the pay, like you say, for internships and residencies certainly has to, you know, go up to help new graduates, you know, be able to do that. I, I, you know, I wish we could just do without internships and residencies. If that weren't necessary, that'd be great. But the problem is too, is that in vet school, you know, there's so little focus on equine and so much more on small animal that, you know, most of the people coming out don't get enough practice with that. So, you know, they really do need a little bit additional training in most cases.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. It seems like you know, in order to do that, I mean, at least in the United States, you have to be like significantly independently wealthy in order to do this, or, you know, be one of the really lucky ones to go to a really cheap in state school, like probably North Carolina or something like that. It's just crazy. They're opening a new vet school in New Jersey, but it's a private university. So it's going to be 60 grand a year. I'm like, what are we not getting across of the student debt as a problem? <laughs> You're opening a vet school at another private school. I feel like I'm talking to a wall.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. So that's something needs to change there. Yeah. Yeah. It is getting to be pretty ridiculous. And, you know, and unfortunately, like I say, it's, it's getting to be a critical need. So something's going to happen soon because we don't have enough equine vets now and, you know, it's going to be even fewer in the future. So.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. I know the, the Tufts equine team has been so understaffed lately. Sometimes they don't even have anyone there to do surgeries or, you know, any on call at at the university for equine. So it's, it's really bad everywhere.
2: Yeah. Well, same at Wisconsin. They just, you know, have gone through a period where they're looking for a new surgeon. So, so currently we're the only, we're the only hospital referral surgical center in you know, in, in Wisconsin and, you know, one of just a handful in the whole Midwest. So.
0: Yeah. And I think, You know, part of it is, you know, everyone says, you know, equine vets don't have a work-life balance, but I honestly think it's because the numbers are so low. If we had a significant amount of equine vets, then everyone would be able to have time off because we'd have people to fill in for them.
2: Yeah. And, you know, certainly there is, you know, some of that. And and, you know, I'm I'm a little bit guilty of that too. You know, I kind of grew up in an era where, you know, we did just, you know, work long, hard hours. And, you know, I grew up on a farm. So, you know, working, you know, 60 or 80 hours a week doesn't mean much to me. You know, it's like that's just kind of normal you know, and, and right. I mean, that, that shouldn't be the normal, but, um, you know, so we do need to kind of figure that out, but right. We, we can't do it if we don't have enough vets. So, you know, every time we lose somebody, then we're just kind of right back to where we started. So we've lost, you know, I think five or six of our vets to small animal practice in the last, you know, five, 10 years. So we got to figure out a way to, to keep people in the profession and, and attract people to the profession and, you know, make the costs more reasonable and, so it's, it's, we're going to go through some changes in our profession, but um, I don't think anybody has all the answers yet. So, and it's going to be a, a hard, hard road to make some big changes to all these systems.
0: Yeah, it definitely will be. And, and hopefully someone figures out an answer, at least something to help, because I was thinking about going into, you know, equine medicine or something like that. And then maybe I still will as like a solo ambulatory practitioner, but I don't want to do well, I can't afford to do a residency, <laughs> even in small animal. I don't want to right now because it's just ridiculous. So we'll see how that goes. But I would still love to practice on, on horses, even if I can't do surgery, just all the other stuff.
2: Well, and there's certainly a, a big need for, you know, even mixed animal practitioners in, in the rural areas. You know, currently in, in the, you know, northern two-thirds of Wisconsin, there is there are almost no equine vets at all. Nobody that's doing any, I mean, not even to do, you know, any routine or, or even easy emergencies. So we've got people hauling down five, six hours from northern Wisconsin just because they've got a colic, you know, and they don't have, to have anybody else to go to. So yeah, there's critical need out there. And, you know, so even people that want to do some equine, you know, is, is you know, better than, than nothing, so.
0: We'll be right back with more Pet
1: Candy. Let's face it, we all love our pets, and we wanna do whatever it takes to keep them healthy and happy. When you have concerns, it's important to speak to someone right away who can help. That's why you should download Petsy, a free app that connects you immediately with credentialed veterinary professionals 24/7. Get peace of mind when it comes to your pet's health and download Petsy for free today in the app store. You'll be glad you did.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Borzinski, for taking the time out of your incredibly busy and world-traveling-packed schedule for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It was fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was so great to meet you, and I hope to stay in touch and hear more about your travels and get some pictures from Machu Picchu. <laughs> and you know, I have a rain check on. Um, 2028 for the LA Olympics. (laughs) Perfect. Yep. All right. Maybe we'll see you there. Yes. That would be fantastic. (laughs) Well, have a good night and thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. And take care to all of our listeners um, as well. Thank you so much for joining in on this conversation. Um, For anyone listening, I hope that your equine spirit has been rejuvenated um, and that you help us take care of all our many equine friends across the world. Um, If you guys have any questions or would like to get in contact with Dr. Brzezinski, uh, we can put her contact information below in the credits of this episode. And this is Shannon Gregoire. And this has been this episode of Simply Pets and hope to see you next time. Pet Candy, candy. it's Pet Pet Candy Radio.